Radical Truth is a podcast produced by TBLI Group and hosted by Robert Rufenstein. TBLI is making the financial system work for all. Our podcasts cover the wide range of ESG and impact investing topics. What it is, why is it booming, is it really helping, is impact regenerative in nature? How will climate change impact investments? There will be regular interviews with thought leaders, some known, some not known, but all brilliant, and we will have engaging conversations with all of them. Can we create an economy based upon well-being? Let's make the financial system work for all. This is Radical Truth. ESG and impact investing have become the buzzwords for the investment community with tens of trillions pouring into this space. Have we made any real progress with addressing environmental and social challenges, climate, food, water, poverty, inequality? Regenerative investments attempt to achieve social and environmental balance as well as financial returns. Lorraine Smith is a writer and independent consultant whose purpose is to contribute the shift to a regenerative economy, one where society thrives with a healthy biosphere. This is Radical Truth. Lorraine, thank you so much for taking the time. I've been a huge fan of yours. Um, you've actually been become a mentor of mine, so I'm really very, very grateful about that. And um, for those of you who live in a, another universe who have never heard of you, who don't know who you are, uh, briefly tell the audience who you are, what you do, and what do you mean by regenerative investment? Thank you very much, Robert, and to your team at TBLI for having me this morning. I'm coming to you from Montreal, Canada, as Robert mentioned. And sure, yeah, I'll give a brief introduction about what I do and uh, what I see in terms of the potential of a regenerative economy and, and regenerative investing in particular. Um, in a nutshell, I'm an independent advisor, so I freelance. I, I keep my lights on and this internet connection going by doing a lot of ESG or environmental, social and governance reporting. I do that in collaboration with a team called Buzzword, which has worked in the ESG reporting trenches for uh, about 25 years now. I've been working with them for about 10 years. So that's how I do a lot of my uh, sort of by day work, um, learning and listening and collaborating with large companies doing their uh, ESG reporting. And I've been involved in some form of ESG reporting, uh, transparency initiatives, stakeholder engagement, materiality assessment, the kind of off the shelf sustainability consulting that many of your listeners and viewers are probably familiar with. Been involved in some form of that since 2003 when I first began working with Canadian Business for Social Responsibility. Um, I'm also, as a freelancer, I get to uh, sort of decide how I allocate my time. So I also do spend some time working directly with large companies. I'm currently working as a sort of ESG coach with one of the largest forest products companies in the world based in Brazil. And I collaborate with their reporting team to sort of expand their minds a little bit about how to have a more positive impact through their ESG work. I'd say by night or sort of when I go into the phone booth and switch into my tattered, um, ill-fitting uh, cape, I am working more towards how to bring a vision of a regenerative economy into being. And I'm one of uh, many people that I've learned from. So I'm very honored that you described me as a mentor. I think of my mentors and people whose books I pour over and hand, into, hand over to everybody I can, people like Marjorie Kelly, 
Kate Rayworth, um, um, Michelle Holiday, people who've been thinking, writing and sharing about this type of work for a very long time. And through that, I, I collaborate with a number of different teams to share and engage. And I can say more about that in a little bit, but I think maybe it would be useful for me to define what I mean by regeneration or regenerative economy, and then segue us into, well, what would that mean for regenerative investing? So um, really simply put, I think of a regenerative economy as one that serves life as opposed to the other way around where we serve the economy. But I'll, I'll break it down a little bit more. And by the way, this is sort of the way I define it, but there are many other more scholarly folks putting really uh, fine details on what it could be and, and what elements of it already are. This is my shorthand. I have three elements that I look for in a regenerative economy. Uh, the first is around the notion of climate. So we have not only lowered our emissions, we have net sequestered emissions until we rebalance our sort of carbon cycle that industry has radically disrupted. That is fundamental. And without that, uh, we're, we're pointed in the wrong direction. That is a net sequestering economic machine, if you will. Uh, the second is that we are restoring, we are net restoring biodiversity. We are net improving the health of ecosystems everywhere, not just in parks or little sort of niche projects. We are net improving biodiversity globally. And last but not least, we are net improving quality of life. We are in enabling social justice as a matter of course for humans as, as one of um, just one species among millions. And I'd say those three things, we're uh, working within a stable climate regime, we're net improving biodiversity and we're creating social justice and quality of life for people by running businesses. So I guess the, the fourth thing or the layer around all of this is this happens because of business. And if you were sipping your coffee there, you might've just spat it out like, that's absurd. That's not what business does. I don't think it's absurd that business organizations, individuals, initiatives work in service of life. I actually think it's absurd that they currently don't work in service of life and that they're, they're causing harm. So that's how I understand a regenerative economy and regenerative investing, and I'd love to dig in here and, and see what kind of questions come up. Um, but regenerative investing looks at how can we allocate capital, financial capital at the moment, that would be the norm, uh, towards organizations, companies, initiatives, people who are working in that service, whose business models, whose purpose is designed to work in service of life. So that's, that's what I'm up to in a nutshell, and I, I suspect Robert, you want to dig a little deeper into that? Slightly, slightly. But before before we we get into uh, into this, um, I think it's very important. You said something which was very hard to believe. Hmm. Uh, if you, for those of you who don't know, uh, Lorraine is an is a ultra marathon runner. She's always running, and if you know, if we, my luck would have been she would have done this talk on her phone while she's running 100 miles. But, and I asked her, why do you do this? And I, I, have, to, I have to read, quote for, exactly quote what she said. I meant to tell you my logic for ultra running. In a nutshell, I realized that it was really unfair of me to ask companies or people within companies to set their sights on a seemingly unattainable long-term goal that would require reorienting their sense of who they are 
and what they are capable of if I myself had no clue what that entails. I decided to do my own version of that, and I use running as my analog because that's what's easily available to me. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm just getting started and still in short distances. I've also had some major setbacks, heartbreak, confusion, pebbles. It's been a multi-year journey, but that's what I'm asking of every industrial player too. So it seems the least I can do, I can, the least I can, I can do. And that's actually uh, quite remarkable for someone basically killing themselves initially when you're running, you know, 100 miles or whatever, because you want to understand what it feels for the industrial uh, players to make this change. That's a, that's a huge ethical stance, which I admire you for doing that. If you can, if you could explain that a bit more. Sure. Well, thank you, Robert, for reminding me why I'm doing that. And just to be super transparent, actually, to be even more transparent, just to step out of the frame for a second, I think when it's just me, you can also see there's there's somebody else here in the room. I don't know if you can also see my cat, Joni, but just in case I wanted to be clear, she's here studying the birds outside. Um, and also in the for other ultra runners, just to make sure that I'm not making claims that I can't back up, I have not run 100 miles yet. I do aspire to cover a lot more ground, but I did in October, I completed my first ultra marathon, which was 88.6 kilometers, about 55 miles, I think. So, um, only 88.6. I'm just, I'm just making sure that you know to to be clear. And and in all sincerity, I guess I, uh, I want to explain. I'll start from an, an industry point of view, if I can, which is that. You know, there's a lot of amazing stuff going on, by the way. Like, I, I know we're going to talk a bit about how ESG is broken and why it's still sort of pointing us in the wrong direction. And, and that does concern me. And I, I want to discuss that. No, uh, Paul, you said, and I agree with you, ESG is a death march going slower in the wrong direction. Okay. So I, I promise to come back to that. But let me place us in a future that I would like to be in. And, and that's, again, you know, I gave those three things, you know, we've aligned with nature's carbon cycles and other cycles, by the way, nature is amazing at cycling all kinds of stuff. Uh, we're contributing to the restoration of biodiversity and we're living in a just society uh, with a, a level of quality of life we like. So let's go further and place ourselves there. When I, when I walk down the street um, or, you know, when I kind of do anything, I go about my day and I observe what I see, I see a big gap between now and that moment in the future. And I found myself um, despairing quite a bit because it's every industry, right? Like there's amazing things going on in regenerative agriculture. There's, there's incredible pockets of innovation, but if we're going to get this right, and I believe we are, I actually believe it in my cells. Um, it's going to be every industry. It's going to be mining. It's going to be energy. It's going to be construction. It, every single industry will serve life in order for that future to be fully viable and, and to realize itself. And so when I imagine, for example, regenerative mining, again, coffee might have just been spat out. It's not, it's not, oh, we're gonna dig holes in the ground and just up our game in terms of securing the tailings dam or and um, ensure better health and safety practices for our workers. 
those things are already happening. Most global mining companies, although they still screw up royally and bury their people in the mud and, and all kinds of nasty stuff, um, they're working hard at what we would call ambitious sustainability. And we'll see that in the ESG data. So we'll talk about that in a sec. But that is not regenerative. It is not regenerative to dig holes in the ground, big gaping holes, displace people, displace rivers, glaciers, forests, and and nameless uh, other species that I, I don't even know about. That is simply not regenerative. It may be less horrible. <laughs> you know, they may not kill people um, by doing that work. But net effect is still quite destructive. And it's feeding this kind of linear take-make-waste model that writ large is part of what's destroying us. So when I imagine what is regenerative mining, which I, I spend a lot of time dreaming about, I think, oh, well, it's not ripping holes in the ground. It's meeting the need that those minerals were serving in a way that serves life. Well, let's follow that trail. What, what need are those minerals serving? Perhaps they're going into devices or building the panels for cars or, you know, oh, well, what needs are those serving? I mean, I don't know everything. I don't have all the answers, but I go through those trails and I'm like, oh, there's meeting the need of transportation. Okay, well, how can we meet that need? Do we, do we need those metals? Are those metals already above ground? Are they sitting as a wasted resource somewhere? Do we already have enough transportation? We just need to reallocate it. We've experienced a massive reallocation in transportation because of the virus. There's, there's definitely some winners and losers on the end of that. But we know we're capable of massively reallocating resources if we think about it. So when I when I realize that I'm asking a, a mining company or like I'm just kind of asking mining, I'm talking to the universe and I'm talking to mining and I'm saying, can we please be regenerative? I don't mean treat your staff better and deal with your pollution. I mean, how are you serving life? And so I, I started to recognize doing work with, you know, large forestry, large agriculture, large mining, energy, coal, uh, finance, that the kinds of things I was saying were verging on absurd to even like hardworking people who care and who've become very good friends. And so if I was going to say things that were that far-fetched that I believe are true, by the way, I don't believe we can continue the way we're going. I thought, well, where do I see my own places where I'm, doing things and, and trying my best. And, you know, I was a runner. And so, you know, I'm trying to go a little faster in a marathon and I did and trained and went faster. And then I was like, I don't think I've even begun to understand my own potential. I don't think I've even begun. And I was at this time meeting people who were doing a lot of inner work, you know, meditation and thinking about consciousness and collective consciousness. And that sort of unlocked a whole sequence of things for me. And I was like, Oh, well, I, I barely know what I'm capable of. And so I'm just beginning to learn that really. So anyway, that that connects the dots there on on running. So, but if which is more difficult um, to get to 100 miles, <laughs> or for the industry to retool itself? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I'm not sure because I'm only one, not the other. But maybe let's let's dive into the ESG thing for a second here because. I can, what I what I hear a lot of folks saying is, you know, we have to meet people where we where they are, and we need to have measurable and discernible information to make good decisions. And I totally agree with that. Like, I don't think we should all just wander around dreaming about regenerative mining and then expect that our computers will be made with magical lithium. You know, I, I do reside on planet Earth, um, and so when I 
go into the trenches of the ESG work that I do. And I'm, I'm kind of scanning the um, community that's here and I recognize some faces that I'm, I'm glad to. And, and these, by the way, there's a lot of folks working really, really hard on ESG reporting. And so um, I'm not meaning to throw people under the bus and say, you know, it's all crap. We're, we're wasting our time. In fact, I think it's, it's really improved significantly um, and there are improvements to come, but, but let me draw a few sort of, let me bring a red thread through the ESG universe and show where I think we are now and how distant that is from that regenerative mind or even regenerative food and ag and things that are a bit more conceptually uh, ready for us. So, um, environmental social governance data been around for a while. We've had the, you know, the sustainalytics and the MSCIs of the world um, pulling that data out of companies and, and analyzing and, and selling that data to help investors make better decisions. And so we have a pretty rich global data set and it's going to keep getting richer because there's more data all the time. But there's a couple fundamental flaws with it. I'll, I'll pick on two. I could, I could pick on a few, but I'll grab two for now. Um, one is that the vast majority of that data really only illustrates how much less bad things are. So GHG emissions is a really easy one to pick on within that. We mostly see um, emissions data. And as I said off the top, in a regenerative economy, we aren't just emitting less. That's, that's going more slowly towards a cliff or that's that slower death march. Um, I'm actually sorry I said that. That's a very doomy thing. I, I, anyways, uh, so having, having data that shows how much less harm we're doing is only partially useful. We need data that shows how much more, how much more wellness we're creating, how much of a healthier society we're creating. And a healthier society isn't one that's less sick. <laughs> it's one that's more well. And so GHG data right now, you, ha you can find it in a few of the sector disclosures and I'll, I'll connect that dot. Um, but for the most part, the vast majority of GHG data following the GHG protocol developed by WRI and WWF a couple decades ago, you know, wonderful folks doing amazing things, working very hard to help us get organized on this very important problem. Currently it only illustrates how much less bad it is. So if an investor or somebody paying attention to the ESG universe wanted to double down on their climate smart investing, the best they could do is have it be climate a little bit less dumb. And in my opinion, that's just not a desirable objective to be, less dumb. <laughs> uh, so that's one problem. And we can go deeper into that. The other problem with ESG data at the moment, and these, by the way, these are amazingly solvable problems. And I bet a whole bunch of folks in this uh, community are already working on this. So the good news is we, we, we're smart and we're able to apply ourselves and unlock our potential. The other problem I mentioned there too um, that I see is that at the moment, so much of that data is black boxed. So either you have to pay for it, uh, you know, you subscribe to the Bloomberg terminal, you pay the wonderful, and I, you know, I'm, I'm friends in case he ever sees this. Hi, Michael. You know, Michael Jancy is a personal friend. I love what he's established with Sustainalytics. I have nothing but respect for what's going on there. MSCI, no folks who've been there for years. Like these are good people doing great work, but it's, you got to pay for the data. And so as a result, it's tough to see what's in there. And as somebody who's created a lot of ESG reports and who's read a lot of CDP disclosures and who's seen the, the sources of the data up close and personal, I can tell you that it's hard enough to compare it as it is, but when you box it up and you have to pay a lot for it, and what we're really talking about here, let's for, not forget, this is about being in service to life. 
not in service to a business model, not in service to a paycheck, in service to life. Well, if the data is about the health of an ecosystem or the health of, um, let's just say, the climate, and we can't really see it very clearly without digging and scratching around and comparing a million really possible things across sectors, and even then it doesn't really line up, it's going to be really hard to make a good decision. And that's, you know, that's me not even trying to invest my billion dollars that I don't have. But if I had a billion dollars and I wanted to double down on climate smart, I'd be kind of SOL at the moment. There's just, it's very, very hard to do. Although I do want to connect a dot and show where that's happening. But Robert, am I, uh, am I no, getting it? No, that, that's fine. But I, 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 I want to, somebody brought up a, what, you know, what do you mean by, you know, ESG as a death march? And, for me, I, I feel the same way. When we started 25 years ago and we were trying to convince institutional investors, we were happy with the progress that we made, even though it took such a long time. But what's happened is everyone has chosen the lowest common denominator. Everyone has sees this as a fitness club where I want to have the membership card, but I'm not actually going to get on the machines to exercise. And if the figures are accurate by of these uh, trade associations that there's forty trillion dollars in ESG, let, well, let's let's say there is forty, you know, forty five. Why is the list of problems so big? Yeah, climate, carbon, water, agriculture, in, in, uh, insecurity, uh, war, pest. So, I mean, there are so many. So either. Yeah. The definition is wrong, or we have to double down. Let's double it. Let's go to eighty trillion, yeah. or we're going slower in the wrong direction, as you were saying, and we need a different approach. So I, I agree with you that um, the whole ESG has been fantastic for fund managers, service providers, uh, consultants, analysts but has the environment or society really benefit? I doubt it. Yeah. Yeah. So let's dig into the death march just a little bit. Um, yeah. And it really does come down to at the moment, investors or anybody looking for meaningful information with ESG, they, they're kind of looking through like multiple blinders. So just finding the information is sometimes difficult depending on how much you want to pay or who you talk to. But then when you have the information, um, you're, you're given broken pieces. And let's just be really honest about some of the root cause of the problem. Um, I, I hear people saying sometimes, you know, the economy is broken. And I would suggest well, it's actually not broken. It's doing exactly what it was designed to do. It's working perfectly according to what it was designed to do. And most businesses and market mechanisms were designed to maximize financial growth. It's doing great, actually. Like sometimes the worse things get, the more, you know, the more profit people earn. So, um, you know, we can check that box. The economy is working great. Oh, but the economy I want to live in is one that serves me, not one that I serve. So that economy, it exists. There are emergent elements of it all around us all the time. I think it lives in us to, to unlock um, it still has some work to do to really be working well. So I think what we're talking about here is how do we build on what we're amazing at doing? Because companies have done and are doing amazing things, like incredibly innovative, you know, they're, they're developing, designing, delivering incredible services and products. Uh, but at the moment, they're not doing it in service of life. The vast majority, even if you look at their purpose, um, 
at the moment, they might say their purpose is one thing, but the purpose they're living is delivering returns to shareholders. So you got to kind of match the words up. And so, so let's go into the trenches a little and see what it would look like for that to be different. Um, and I'll, I'll cherry pick a few spots and I'll pull on some of the frameworks that are, uh, that are out there that we already have available. Because by the way, I do think we have a lot of the tools. We're just not using them. Um, I mentioned, I'm just going to spill a bit more on the, the root cause. So part of the root cause is this is not how we design companies. So design is an issue and how we design business models and design market mechanisms is really important. Another root cause issue, I think, is quite honestly, um, a lot of people are just not even aware that it's an option to think about a regenerative economy. Like people literally do laugh. They spit their coffee out. They're like, God, imagine a, a mining company that works in service of life. And it's like, that shouldn't be funny. That should actually be normal. So once we look at those root causes, then let's look at what companies are doing about it. So let's take Walmart. They're they're always fun to look at because they're you know one of the world's largest economies, even if they were a country. And in uh, the latter part of 2020, they announced their new sustainability strategy, which is to be a regenerative company by uh, I think it's by 2040. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's a 20-year time horizon. So that's exciting on a bunch of levels, right? They're picking up on the regenerative theme. Uh, they're putting some numbers behind it, some some programmatic numbers across different elements of their business. And they're signaling really publicly, you know, hey, we're one of the biggest companies in the world. Obviously, everyone knows their supply chain is ginormous. Their suppliers pay attention when they say and do stuff. So my, my immediate reaction was like, yippee, <laughs> that's awesome. Um, and then I dug a little deeper and I'm not saying this to, um, throw Walmart under the bus, but more to say like, thank you, but try again. We, we've got to keep trying. We've got to keep iterating on this and get it right. So it's not about saying you're a stupid jerk. It's about saying, how can we work together to get this right? If you look at their forestry, what, so one of their metrics is looking at their forestry products and they will be hundred percent regenerative by 2040. And the way they're describing it right now is that hundred percent of the forest based products in their uh, supply chain will be deforestation free. Now, to be clear, I'm I'm in favor of a deforestation free supply chain. So I think that's a good thing. But that's like saying I want to be an ultra marathoner and then running five kilometers. There's nothing wrong with running a 5K. It's great. But that is so not the ultra marathon. The ultra marathon in, in forestry would be saying, any forest product that makes its way through our supply chain left the forest ecology better than it was found, enabled more life to thrive, human and non-human. So zero deforestation, you know, I used to work as an industrial tree planter. I paid for school in the early 90s by planting trees in industrial clear cuts. And some of what gets FSC certified will still be considered zero deforestation. So, but I'll tell you, that was a, a bleak environment. That is not a that is not a forest community. So for Walmart to go the regenerative trail, and I'm, I'm you know, they're big. They got lots of people. And I've, I've worked with them over the years and I've got friends who've worked there. I think they're doing amazing things and doing their best. Um, in short order, somebody in there is going to have to switch those metrics around and get it so that for them to be truly regenerative, they are leaving an ecologically positive footprint on everything they touch. And I'm going to just speculate that's going to mean changing their business model. That's going to mean reorienting what they mean by value creation. And that's going to radically change the dialogue they have with their investors. And any investor who really wants to be climate smart is going to look at their ESG data differently. 
So let's go down that wormhole for a second here, because this is like this is very practical stuff that we can do now. And by the way, I'm not currently working with Walmart. I don't touch their ESG reporting. Just I'm just a bystander there. I just look at it and make make noises. Um, and one of the noises I made, by the way, when they announced it, is they said we're going to be regenerative within 20 years. And I tweeted at them, "We don't have 20 years. Like get regenerative now." Which we can, by the way. A sprout can grow on my counter in a week. Like we are capable of uh, making things happen. So. Uh, probably a lot of your folks listening in are familiar with SASB, Sustainable Accounting Standards Board, and SASB, amazingly, late last year, it looks like they're merging with the Integrated uh, International Integrated Reporting Council, the IRC. So these are two, you know, really noticed uh, global frameworks or um, ESG indicator generators, if you will, uh, starting to come together. That's exciting. And the clients I work with are paying very close attention to that. They definitely want to build SASB into their ESG disclosures. And so uh, we are seeing an increase. And if you look closely at it and it will evolve, it's new and it's gone through iterations and their working groups. So this is where, like, where can you play a role? Do you have any influence on SASB? Are you part of a working group? Are you working with a client who is? Because if you look at the SASB, um, they have industry uh, standards. So they go by different sectors. If you look at the investment industry standard, um, the word biodiversity doesn't occur. Like there's just no mention of it. So there's no way for any investment company who's disclosing using SASB's indicators to say, this is how we're impacting life on earth, period. It's simply not there. Climate is mentioned, um, but only once. And climate is mentioned in the context of your investments should be in organizations that have climate disclosures. Okay, so let's follow that bouncing ball. Let's go. We've, we had our billion dollars and we decided to invest it in, uh, to take a position in a company that has climate disclosures. Okay, cool. Let's say it's a food or agriculture company. You go further into the sector standard for SASB for food and ag, and there they mention biodiversity, but you got to go digging. Like it's mentioned in, I think, three instances, but it's essentially like, are you doing anything on biodiversity? Yes, no. So you could actually check the box and just keep checking boxes and say you've got an ESG climate aligned investment um, and still miss the boat. But here comes the boat. Watch it. There is a spot in the SASB uh, food and ag sector standard that says, for example, so you don't have to do this, but for example, in your climate disclosures, you could reference your connection to the FAO Climate Smart Agriculture Initiative. Are you doing anything on that? So you go, hmm, what's that? You go digging into the Climate Smart Agriculture Initiative of the FAO. Ah, bingo. Here, they're providing really interesting information about truly regenerative agricultural practices in different parts of the world. It's very niche when you go in there. It's like nifty little projects here and there. But if the Walmarts of the world are serious about regeneration, they're going to say niche is now normal. And the idea of growing up any kind of food, fiber or fuel without restoring the life in the soil and enabling life to thrive is, is a bad idea, it's degenerative. So that's the trail from like less bad to more good. Right now it's a really murky trail. We're kind of slashing in our, uh, with our machetes trying to find our way, but we could make that trail a lot easier, I think. Okay. I'm going to start taking some questions and I'll save my questions uh, for you. I'm still want to push that 
100-mile uh, marathon compared to companies pumping out press releases and not really doing anything. Yep. Uh, John, John Howell had a question. Uh, how would you describe the relation of regenerative investment to ESG and or impact investing? Yeah, well, at the moment, I'd say it's a pretty shaky relationship, <laughs> but that's what we're going to fix, right? So at the moment, um, I think there's an understanding that, you know, there's lots of ESG boxes to check and companies are checking them. And so um, the job is done. And as just described, you know, there's a long way between truly regenerative practices and ESG data. It's my understanding with impact investing, and, and by the way, that's an area I have less experience in, so definitely more anecdotal, collaborating with friends and colleagues who are in the space. Uh, it's my understanding that with impact investing, it's a lot more diverse. There you've got organizations that have much more specific mandates, and depending on the team, the region, the type of investing they're doing, they're doing more targeted due diligence and exploration of their own and not relying on um, ESG reports on company websites. And I would also get, uh, suspect that impact investors are not, I'm just going to go out on a twig. They're not holding a position in Walmart. They're looking, they may be somewhere in Walmart supply chain, uh, but they're not likely investing in those larger companies. So um, I, I see that they're related. I think the common ground, and this is where, this is where I'm kind of fixated these days, like uh, is in the, in the data set. So if the data, let, let's, let's just think about data as something that flows. It comes from a source and it goes to somebody who's looking for it or didn't know they were looking for it, but they got it. So there's this pipeline of data and the data comes from lots of different sources. It may come directly from the company. It may come from within the company's supply chain, different elements of its operations. It flows through different, places, maybe through ESG reporting, maybe through responding to surveys, interviews, et cetera. And then it flows into some of those consultants and businesses that Robert mentioned, or maybe sits on a website and somebody downloads it and uses it for something. So you've got this flow of data. There's lots of it, of all sorts, um, environmental, social, et cetera. Um, at the moment, a lot of that data supply is in the less bad category. So you've got this You've got data that's showing how much less harm, how much less risk companies are having. The supply of data is not yet effectively comparable from a regenerative perspective. There's very little data out there that says this is how much net good we are creating. So we have a supply issue. And then we also have a demand issue, which is we don't have a lot of investors uh, or anybody, frankly, saying, you know, I'm not sure we're quite going far enough here. I'd like to see information that shows me that you, company, understand the North Star here is net regenerative, that you understand that and that you're working towards it. And so even impact investors, I think, will face that challenge and they have to do a lot of their own scratching around and going to sites and listening and learning. And that gets quite niche. I, I think it's amazing. I think there's incredible things going on in impact investing. Uh, but you've still got that data challenge. And so the fact that we have, you know, anybody can go to Google and look up the stock price or the currency exchange of kind of anything, but we can't see if a company is net emitting or sequestering. We can't see if a company is net uh, improving biodiversity or quality of life. Like that's a little sus to me. I think we're totally capable of handling that complexity if we sign ourselves up for it. We just haven't asked ourselves. 
Um, and I would say, by the way, and I, I see uh, a bit of heckling about Walmart in the, the comments. You know, I agree. They're like, they're a behemoth. They produce uh, a lot of cheap stuff that we don't need. And in, until that's not normal, any claim for regeneration will be a problem uh, or will be, let's say, specious. Um, I would note that I don't totally give up uh, because they have set that North Star. And so as soon as, like, it, I think it's possible that they're saying, we have a different destination than we thought. And that destination, if they're genuinely going to move towards it, will require the end of producing cheap stuff, the end of, you know, churning on this mass consumption. I think that's totally possible. People change all the time. I've changed a great deal in my half century of existence. And, and there's no reason why people within Walmart, well, there are a few reasons why they couldn't, but there are lots of reasons why they could. So just offer that as a little shred of hope. Someone who actually works at a company called North Star had a question. Uh, Jyoti Banerjee, would you tax short-term investments or give tax breaks to long-term investments? For well, there you're asking me uh, to say things that I don't know too much about. <laughs> but I would say, um, and great to see you, Jyoti. I actually I have a little pin that I want to come back to. Robert, remind me to share a little bit about what we're up to with the Regen X team. Um, I think taxation is important. I think all policy is important. I think we are currently incentivizing the wrong things. So I could see tax and, and different kinds of taxation as a great point of leverage to, as I think it was Pavan Sukhdev would say, like um, tax the bads, not the goods. So helping people see that making better decisions uh, will cost them less over time. I, I think that's a great way to go. One of the wrinkles I see with that, um, let me let me borrow. I'm gonna I'm gonna complicate life a little bit because I'm describing this vision that I have, and I really do have it, and I think it's achievable. Um, but I'm gonna not be Pollyanna about how complex and daunting it is. So um, let me describe a, a layer of complexity that's lurking with us here and see what that might mean in relation to taxation, for example. So. I think in a lot of jurisdictions, certainly in Canada and different parts of the world, there's been tax um, incentives to switch to electric vehicles, for example. Um, and so, cool, EVs. And there's lots of great numbers that show why you know we really need to electrify our vehicle planet. So is that in service of life? I'm going to say at the moment, I don't know. If it is, and I'm going to give a concrete example of something that shows what we're up against here. This isn't just like grabbing one company or one piece of data. This is sort of all of us asking questions as we go and iterating in our best possible way. So early 2020, I did some research around uh, in response to Larry Fink's letter to CEO saying, you know, we've really got to pay attention to climate. Please use the TCFD. Uh, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, please up your game in your climate-related disclosures. Take this seriously. It's a big deal. And, you know, I'm always happy to see the Larry letter in some ways because he gets people thinking, but in other ways, I'm like, oh, here we go again. We get this, you know, American white investment guy saying that you have to do something that 25 years ago people were saying is totally obvious. That in and of itself is annoying, but it's even more annoying when you go into how companies respond. And, and that gets to some of what I just said about the kind of not enough plus good versus less bad. Um, and so I decided to do a bit of benchmarking research of my own just because I can, because that's what you get to do when you freelance and you like to exhaust yourself. And so I 
Um, I chose 12 companies to benchmark in pairs. So two banks, two footwear and apparel, two tech, two mining companies. And took a look and uh, there's a letter to Larry on my blog. If you're bored, you can read it. And in the footnote, there's a link to um, the data that's behind it. And so what I'm about to tell you, I didn't write up in great detail in the letter, but it links in the footnotes. I wrote other stuff in the letter. What I'm about to tell you relates to electric uh, electrification of vehicles. Um, the two mining companies, one of them was Glencore. I decided to pick companies that had a big stake in coal and try to understand how were they looking at their climate disclosures and how might they be responding? Because that game is changing. We are seeing some divestment from coal, et cetera. So um, I decided to look at Glencore, just as sort of, you know, oh, let's grab some coal companies. Oh, here's one, Glencore. Um, and I went to look at their CDP uh, disclosure to see what they're saying on climate. And it turns out they declined to disclose to CDP. So I was like, oh, and immediately I judged, oh, you know, bastards, they won't even disclose their climate stuff. And I was like, well, let's see what they're saying to investors. And so I went to some of their recent earnings calls. You can, most of the earnings transcripts are public. You can find them sometimes on websites. I use Seeking Alpha and I just go and read transcripts as a hobby. It's quite fascinating to see what CEOs and CFOs are saying to investors and also quite fascinating to see what investors are asking. So I look at the Glencore um, investor earnings call from, I think it was late 2019. And to my surprise, the CEO was making very, pro-climate messages saying, you know, because we see the climate writing on the wall, we are getting out of coal. And I was like, oh, okay. So they're, who knows why they're declining to respond to the CDP, maybe because it's a really annoying survey that is a problematic uh, data device. So I don't know, but they're getting out of coal. Interesting. And then I look a little further and not only are they getting out of coal, they're starting to really resource um, their mining concerns that mine minerals that go into electric batteries specifically for the car market. And they say, we see the climate benefits of this and you know we see the writing on the wall. It's like, oh, that's encouraging, I think. In parallel, by total coincidence, because life serves up exactly what you need in the right moment, I get an email from my brother, who's this kind of interesting guy, always tinkering and inventing apps. And he had just kind of invented this app that's sitting on a shelf doing nothing. That's a lobbying app where you can look up any company in Canada or the US and see how they're spending their lobbying dollars. And he's like, Laura, I think I've invented a cool app. Do you want to check it out? Can you test it for me? And I was like, can I look up Glencore on this? Cause that's what I'm doing right now. And he's like, yeah, put in Glencore. So I look up Glencore's lobbying spend in the US. And, and that's all transparent too. Anybody who has the time and bother can see all this stuff. It's all right in front of us. Glencore spending money on lobbying. It turns out if you if you're spending five thousand or less, you don't have to say how you spent it. And they've got lots of dribs and drabs, five grand, five grand, five grand. But I'm like, oh, what's this? Two hundred fifty thousand, quarter of a million dollars on lobbying. Huh? What's it for? Oh, to work around the Magnitsky sanctions. What are the Magnitsky sanctions? I have no idea because I don't really get any news. I Google the Magnitsky sanctions, which are sanctions that the US government put in place to prevent companies that trade on US exchanges from doing business with oligarchs. I think, why is Glencore doing business with oligarchs? And why did they have to pay such a big chunk of change to get around that little detail? Oh, because they're trying to buy up two large mining concerns in the Republic of Congo, which is a slightly challenging place to just buy up hunks of forest and dig holes in the ground, unless you're in like Flynn with an oligarch, which they are uh, in this Israeli fellow who was able to, let's just say, help them that, get that concern going. So is that in service of life to go into a highly corrupt environment, rip holes into one of the 
few pieces of huge um, rainforest in a in a conflict riddled area where you know to really serve life there, mm, mining is not what we need more of. So that we can have more electric vehicles, is that in service of life? I'm gonna give us a quick answer and say no, it's not. That is not how we're going to get ourselves out of this problem. So Jyoti, I love the taxation question. Um, and where, where I come to is I think we have to get into even more basics of um, how do we understand what is good behavior and how do we incentivize that through taxation or, or other means? And then nobody in their right mind would dig a hole in a rainforest because that behavior is bad for everybody. And if we need more batteries for our cars, we're going to use our incredible brilliance that we are born with. And we are going to unlock it to move ourselves around in whatever way we need to, in cars, in planes, in trains, swimming, I don't care. We're going to do it in a way that serves life, not mass death. And that's my answer to the tax question. <laughs> okay. Uh, Eileen has had a question. Is there any evidence that a shift to investment companies with high ESG scores has an impact on the actual effects on natural capital or maybe their cost of capital? Yeah, I love that question. Um, the short answer is I don't know. I know there's tons of evidence that says that ESG investing has a higher financial return. And I'm sorry, and I know I'm on record, but I'm just going to stick my finger in my mouth and barf with that because showing that you get a higher financial return with a broken tool, like showing that you get more of the thing that's causing the problem by using the thing that's broken is a is not an evidence set that I want to spend time with. Um, is there any evidence that it actually improves natural capital? Or, or I prefer to think of it in terms of like our relation with the other species. So does it improve life and, and make systems healthier. Um, that's a great question. I don't know the answer, but that would be the kind of information that would be useful. So if a company could show in their ESG reporting that as a result of existing, <laughs> they improved the net health of an ecosystem. Uh, yeah, that would be terrific. And I'm not aware of that happening at a large scale. I will use this as a segue to share a bit more about what a few of us have been working on, I, I reference this Regen X project. Um, so literally trying to solve that exact challenge. How would a company, if an investor is awake to this, they're like, yeah, we totally get it. We want to invest in regeneration. We want, we have, we're demanding that data. Please give us that data. How would we get it? So we, a few of us through uh, something called the Global Regeneration Collab, have uh, been sort of agitating on this and it's spun into a few things. So I'll, I'll just briefly share what that means. We, we put our heads together sort of through the spring and summer of last year to imagine what, what would that look like? How would investors be informed in a way that's meaningful to solve for, for that very question and beyond? And what already exists? So we did a bit of a scan of the existing ESG frameworks, one that's really promising and offers a lot of the elements of what we're talking about here is the future fit business benchmark. If you're not aware of it, it's a really great tool. It's open source, free, anybody can use it. It's not a black box. Um, and a number of large companies are using it and applying it to their ESG metrics. It's not instead of SASB or instead of GRI, it kind of incorporates them and um, the SDGs and more. And it sets a threshold. It says, you know, in order to be doing net no harm, these are the kinds of indicators and kinds of information you need. 
And then they have what they call positive pursuits. So then in order to be net positive, this is what you would need to be able to demonstrate. It's iterative. I think they're in their fourth public version. Uh, Spirit of Disclosure, I'm on their expert council, so I, I know the framework quite well. So as the RegenX team, this team that uh, emerged through the Global Regeneration Collab, as we were tinkering away, scanning what's already out there, future fit is there. There's some amazing bioregional work being done. Uh, lots of different initiatives that are looking at, you know, how would we know it if we saw it? And then, oh my goodness, my cat's trying to catch a bird right now. Um, and then we looked at, so how might investors use this information? And we did some interviewing and, and uh, connecting with folks in the investor space to say, like, are you seeing a need for this? Are you, do you see this challenge? And the short answer was, yes, we see this challenge. We see this need. There's no direct answer right now. Um, this collaborative that I'm mentioning, it's, it's voluntary. We've been sort of experimenting. It's spinning into interesting stuff or, or interesting things were already underway that, that connect. So, for example, uh, Jyoti, who's on the line with uh, North Star Transitions, an incredible initiative that, that and I won't put too many words in your mouth, Jyoti, and straighten me out and put a good link in the chat, but um, really looking at how do you engage in meaningful dialogue across systems to create the kind of regenerative changes we're talking about. And so using more than sort of a tool or data to get at that behavioral level, really cool stuff they're doing. And then in parallel, there's another group that's been very connected with RegenX, the Climate Data Hub, that's looking at how do we lift up data sets? There's so much data out there. How do we get some of this data that's not flowing through the ESG pipelines lift it up and connect it, combining AI and library sciences to start to or continue to get this, these really rich pools of data visible so that we can answer that really important question. I think it was Arlene that, that's saying, you know, has any of this investing had an impact on natural systems or, or even human systems? I'd love to be able to answer that. It's a great question. I had a question here from Laura. Where was that? Here. Um, I'll find in a second. Yeah. Oh, I, oh, here it is. Here it is. Here it is. Um, no, I have to go up a little bit. I had, a, I had a question for you. How do you address the issue of stranded assets? Hmm. Uh, I'll give you an example. There's a technology from this genius Frenchman that eliminates all CO2 emission from cement, which mm -hmm. is quite polluting. And it uses waste material, fly ash, slag, salt water, doesn't burn, three times harder, blah, blah. It's great, fantastic. So you're blue, uh, you're Lafarge, and you go to your bank. I'm going to get rid of all of my CO2 emissions. And I need you to write down $12 billion in loans that you've given me because we got to close all the quarries and shift to this stuff. And I need another $5 billion. So, Lorraine, can you have that check ready for me? This afternoon? <laughs> yeah, so happily I can answer. No, I, I can't have that check ready for you this afternoon. And, you know, with respect, I would say the stranded assets challenge just is sometimes the wrong question. So it Or it points to the more important questions like, well, what would be in service of life? And I, I get that I'm saying, you know, oh, don't worry about those billions that you've stranded. And I, I don't mean don't worry about it like I don't care. I mean, don't worry about it like focus on what would serve life. And if stranding those assets is how you have to describe it, that's your language from a time and paradigm that I don't live in. And I, and I get that it's a real thing. So I'm not trying to be glib. 
Um, but like tough shit. It's, it's our fault for creating an economic paradigm that considers those stranded assets as opposed to geological circumstances or, you know, you could describe them in any number of ways. If you were a river and you could communicate directly in a language we understand, which I think they kind of can actually, we're just not listening. How would you call those assets, right? What would you call that buried sunshine? I don't think the river would call it a stranded asset. I think they'd carry on and say, obviously you don't dig it up and burn it, doofus. Like if a river could explain it, if my 12 year old niece could explain it, if my rescue houseplant Georgette could explain it, then I would just say to the investors, you're using the wrong language. And I'm sorry that you're gonna lose billions of dollars, but you screwed up. <laughs> Stop screwing up and things will get better. Okay, well, I found Laura's question. Do you consider green infrastructure with nature-based solutions regenerative? I love that question. I've been thinking so much about infrastructure. And Laura, if you're super bored, my most recent blog post is from my run that I did because I ended up not running out in the hills where it was originally scheduled because it was canceled. And so I did my own kind of urban run and ran along the St. Lawrence River and crossed a bunch of bridges. And I think a lot about green infrastructure. The short answer is, I think it depends. So a lot of green infrastructure, I think, is still following the track of less bad. So it's, you know, minimizing harm to shorelines or, you know, creating routes for the fish to still be able to get by. Like it's still in this like, well, we're going to control the show and we're going to make sure all of our needs are met and we don't mess things up too badly. But I think there's great opportunity and it's it's not an area I know great details of. So if you've got examples or, you know, specific um, things that you would recommend people take a look at in terms of green infrastructure, I'd love to, to check out the comments later. Um, I think it's more than possible for infrastructure, I think it's more than possible for every single industry that exists in the regenerative economy to serve life. And you'll notice I chose my words carefully there. I think there are some industries that we have today that don't exist in that economy or that radically alter their raison d'être to be suitable for that future. And, and they're not now. And unless that sound really harsh, like let's just remember, you know, everybody's different age and different region on this call, but things that were super normal when I was born are not normal now. And things that don't even exist now or aren't normal now will be when I die or, you know, in a few decades, I don't know when I'll die. Um, so like things change all the time. It was normal to smoke in the bank. When I, I remember going to the bank when I was a little kid with my mom holding her hand and everybody standing there smoking in the line. Like, that changed. We made big changes. We're going to keep making big changes. So green infrastructure, I think, like any other industry, it's going to have to ask, is this in service of life? Does this, um, have we understood how we are in relation? So um, a line that I'd like to, I'd like to give a signal around is the term land use. It comes up in a number of the sector standards in SASB. It's part of a lot of ESG reporting. People talk about land use, change in land use. And the way we're looking at it is like, are we changing from a native forest to producing food? Or in the case of infrastructure, you know, are we removing arable land to create a road? I'd like to encourage us to think about language as an important point of leverage or place of leverage. I don't think about land use. I think about relationship to land. So what is changing in terms of our relationship to this land? And when you ask that question, it it becomes quite different. It's, it's an awareness that we are all in relation, whether we have recognized that or not. 
And so I think green infrastructure, yes, has the potential to be regenerative. Um, and I'd love to see more of that happening. And Robert, I saw a question about board. Uh, can I jump on that board question? I know we're, we're short on time. I'm just going down the list, but if you see something, uh, do whatever you like. Cool. And I know we talked about running a little over. Are we going we gonna to do that? Yes, we are. We are uh, I'll add another six hours because I'm sure everybody just wants to hang out over here. Uh, I don't know about six hours, but uh, but yeah, let's let's grab another fifteen or twenty minutes if we can. And and I totally understand if people need to go. And glad folks have been here. Um, but I see Hella. Great to see you, Hella. And I really appreciate the board question. And um, I think boards are incredibly important, especially for publicly listed companies, um, because there is potentially leverage there. I would love to see, so I'm, I'm sometimes part of creating board presentations as somebody who helps create uh, ESG reports that go external. We're often tasked to sort of grab some of that information and organize it and message it so that it can go up to the board as well. And what I would love to see in terms of board dialogue is, um, this might sound a little bit strange, but I'd love to see a greater degree of um humanity, like a recognition, you know, we don't have to package and parcel everything just so with the perfect messages so that they don't, you know, worry. And they think we have this all in hand because, you know, nobody has this all in hand. Like these are incredibly complex dynamic circumstances that we're in. I mean, we've always been in humanity has always been in a dynamic living system. Um, but in terms of our industrial impacts right now, I think we're at a really interesting time where um, we're seeing the, impacts, right? We're seeing the collapse of, of a lot of ecosystems. We're seeing the essentially inevitable climate. Um, I don't know if, I don't know if I want to use the word catastrophe, but like drastic climate impacts and how they play out in different regions is going to be obviously quite different. My circumstances in Montreal, very different than in Manila, for example. Um, but there's, there's really no debate about how urgent and severe what we're facing is. And so Let's not pretend that a company has a perfect five-year plan. Let's not pretend we like, you know, companies who had that perfect five-year plan and then COVID came are like, oh, and I think of COVID as a warm-up. by the way. I think of it as like, this was a practice round to learn how to mobilize the entire world. Whether we're doing it right, whether I agree with everything, that's kind of like a side conversation. I think this is an experience in mass mobilization across borders, across regions, across sectors. So what can we learn from that to see, yeah, you thought, that we couldn't do that, it turns out we can. So in board conversations, I'm really appreciating where companies and people, the people having those conversations are speaking openly and they're engaging in multi-directional dialogue to say, you know, this is what we understand. And we encourage you to share what you understand and stop with this like super organized binder of stuff that looks like we know what's going on and, and really embrace more humanity. Um, lots more on the board stuff. I think we could chat about. Um, I think somebody that you know, Andrew, had a question. Uh, do you think firms like MSCI are roadblocks, uh, sort of like RAS roadblocks, or is a potential player in the transition from ESG to regenerative data? Yeah, I love that question. Great to see you here, Andrew. Um, you're our future, so thanks for being here. Um, I think they're potentially our greatest allies because the folks just like, so just like I play in the ESG reporting space, which I could, and I probably have sort of poo-pooed and um, saying, you know, it's not solving the problem. It's not going fast enough. It's going too slowly in the wrong direction. 
but I still stay in that space because I actually see incredible potential and, and commitment. I see people, human beings, noticing the opportunity to make meaningful change for the better and being willing to resource it. Likewise, with the MSCIs and the Sustainalytics and, and others with their current sort of for-profit black box model, these are amazing people who I think generally want a lot of what I want and probably what you want. And so like other industries that are going to need to rethink their business models in service of life or, you know, insert whatever phrasing feels good to you. Uh, I think there's great potential for them to do that too. And I love the idea. And I think we see this in lots of camps. I love the idea of the open source data model. So what does it look like, for example, for an MSCI or Sustainalytics or for the lot of them to sort of come together share their data and have the business model be ways to monetize the data they're sharing. Cause we're like, there's still lots of stuff to pay for and lots of work needs to be done. Like crazy amounts of work need to be done to harmonize the data, to get it to people who can use it and understand it, to generate more, to, to have instances where green back to green infrastructure, let's design the most regenerative green infrastructure project fathomable and then let's build it well that's going to take a lot of people a lot of jobs when i hear people talking about you know well you end fossil fuels you lose a lot of jobs yeah but that's because we need those people to get to work doing the things we actually need so could we open source that data and a bit like the you know the api models that software companies have where maybe they've created the the thing but you can put your thing on it and you're you're going to make money doing that or you're going to thrive you're going to be able to deliver on your projects um i would love for them to open source it and cdp too you have to pay you can get up you can view up to 20 cdp responses for free so anybody can log in um but after 20 you got to pay and as a result pretty much nobody except a very niche group of people are looking at that data wouldn't it be something if any policy fellow or gal in an urban planning environment in the mayor's office could take a look at that data and not have to pay for it, right? I know there's, you know, there's lots of access, but, and then let the smart AI folks and other data scientists, let them harmonize it and improve that data set and let it get better and better and richer and richer in the true sense of wealth, i.e. well-being, and then enable all the smart people out there to hook their brains onto it and do all the cool stuff we need. So, yeah, I think they could be great potential partners. Okay. Uh, Bu Du had a question. What if we measure social welfare delivered per unit of energy and material consumption instead of using wealth and income as proxy for welfare? Yeah, I love it. I mean, one of the biggest issues we see is that what we're currently measuring isn't what we want to currently be measuring. So, you know, and there's the adage, what gets measured gets managed. We often forget that what came after that was even if it's not important, or I forget the exact phrasing, but it's something like what gets measured gets managed, even if it's not important or harmful to do so. And people leave that last part off. They just like the let's measure something and manage it. So yeah, let's measure well-being. Let's measure wellness. Let's measure ecosystem health. We are already doing that. So that's already happening. And I mentioned the Regen X project. And I, I think Eva's here as well. And Eva, I'm forgetting the name of your amazing initiative that you're part of. So if you're still here and you're hearing this, or maybe Andrew knows it, to drop a link, it's just incredible uh, what they're up to. So there's already amazing elements of that happening. It's happening all around us in multiple regions. Where I would love to see your question going further is, how can we make that normal? And, and by the way, 
I'm not a believer. I'm a, probably a bit of a pain in the rear on this. I'm not a believer in harmonizing metrics. Sorry. But I think to push for like one standardized set of metrics, although there's a lot of people pushing for that and I love them. Um, I'm not pushing for that because I think that's what pushes us into these checkboxes and says, you know, if we could just get that one metrics and then you get that one metric, then you get people kind of being able to say they are responding to that metric, but they're not responding to the kind of living, breathing, dynamic thing that we are in need of addressing. And so I like the idea of new metrics. I like the idea of metrics that get at exactly that well-being measurement. I love the idea of investors seeking that out, demanding that data and using that to make their decisions around where to allocate capital and measuring the return on that capital based on those metrics. And then just like language, where we speak a lot of different languages around the world and those languages are evolving and we still communicate and we still manage to write poetry and go see plays and dream and do all the things that language enables us to do without having one fixed language. I, I would love for us to think of, you know, the alphabet is open source and there are multiple alphabets. Let's use those standards to our best advantage. Okay. Ben had a question. What do you think uh, are the main levers to pull to shift our industrial and economic model beyond sustainability toward regeneration, tax accounting regulation, any good academic other research to support the long-term economic and business case to nudge companies that are hesitant? Oh, there's so much great reading out there. Um, okay. There's a lot in there. Great reading and leverage points. I'm going to, with great reading, I'm going to punt this a little bit and just say like, Honestly, I think the best book ever written on this topic was Marjorie Kelly's The Divine Right of Capital. It came out 20 years ago. I think she was way ahead of her time. I think a lot of the work now that's coming out, uh, things like Kate Rayworth's Donut Economics, et cetera, build on that. And I still think where Marjorie goes with her sort of explaining how we got to where we are and how we get out of it is the best use of time. So I'll just say go there. And others in the chat, if you know great books, uh, pile in. Um, but then leverage points. So... You know, there are lots like taxation for sure, education for sure. I mean, how many of you grew up or went to business school uh, with questions like what's in service of life? I'm going to bet most of us not. Um, some for sure, like some schools really do prioritize that. Things like Waldorf schools based on Rudolf Steiner's thinking. Definitely those kinds of concepts are baked in. But for the most part, certainly not in the business schools. The idea of understanding that we're just one species among many and that we're not really in charge. Um, like it took a virus coming out of the microbiome <laughs> to tell us that like, oh, oops, we're not in charge, are we? Um, so I think there are lots of leverage points. I'm going to encourage um, each of us to think about, well, what leverage point do I have? So for example, and I think there's two ways to cut at that. I think one is geographical or like physically, where are you? And then the other is sort of um, conceptual or professionally, let's say. So physically, I'm in Montreal. That's where I live. I'm Canadian, lived in different parts of the world, but this is where I am now. So what can I do to understand the infrastructure, the collaborators, the social dynamic, to flow information, to contribute to change in the best possible way I can. That answer is going to be really different for me than it is for everybody else on this call. That's geographic. And sometimes there really are very specific things that you can lean into and like show up for on Saturday afternoons or whatever it may be. But then on the other axis, this sort of more conceptual or professional, I would say, where are you great? 
you know, where do people pay attention to you? Where, where have you been running a 5k that you could actually be running 150k? And where have you been dreaming? You know, what makes your toes wiggle in the morning? And what do you get excited about? And, you know, what are those superpowers? Because if you could kindly put your cape on and get flying, that's the leverage point right there. And I'm sure there's greatness across everything from mathematical acuity to um, facilitation on this call and, and everything in between. And those leverage points, you know, please don't underestimate them. You have tremendous capacity. Steve wanted to ask you something. Could you let us know what would a healthy regenerative economy look like especially oh. in terms of speculative markets, holding period, frequency of trade and investment allocation? If I, I just want to interject here. Someone asked a similar question to uh, one of the congressmen from New York, um, AOC. They asked her, what would defunding the police and all the other uh, requests of Black Lives Matter look like? And she said, the suburbs. <laughs> That's interesting. Um, yeah, it's a great question. And by the way, I'm just going to step out of the frame for a second and say, like, let's go till 10 to the hour, just in case people are like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to hang on or whatever. I'm going to say, let's wrap up at 10 to the hour just to give people back time. Um, and also so they know what's going on. Um, there's two questions hiding in there. You know, what does the regenerative economy look like to me? And then what does that mean to things like speculative trading? Uh, and I, I'm going to say there's no speculative trading in the regenerative economy. It's bad news, right? It's profit driven. It's about hedging that there will be problems versus imagining and then causing to manifest those problems not existing. Uh, I don't mean to say we'll see the end of speculation, but I'd like to imagine we can and that it won't be incentivized. So what does that look like? I think when we look at incentives, you know, right now, even it's like, if you notice in our language and by language, I mean the words we use when we communicate also in our cultural norms in our entertainment, in our stories that we tell ourselves, we've got some really popular um, memes. We talk about getting rich quick. We talk about rags to riches. We talk about making it. We talk about, um, a whole bunch of ideas that essentially mean getting a lot of money. And that is the plan, right? That's desirable. You know, nobody wants to bring their first date home and uh, to their parents. And, you know, they want to say he's a banker. They don't want to say he's a chimney sweep, right? Like banker, that's very good. Chimney sweep. How are you kids going to pay the bills? So we are from the beginning trained to seek out more and more money. When we grow up, and we are regenerative, we are going to be trained and understand as desirable that what we really want to seek out is more life. We want to seek out life thriving. We want to live well in relation to one another. And by one another, I mean each other, we humans and we, we non-humans, you know, all the cats and plants and, and the microbiome. I, I actually literally mean everyone. So we will live well in relation to a virus like COVID-19. It will not cause mass destruction. How do we incentivize that? Well, we, we stop telling stories about, or maybe we don't stop, but we don't think they're the bee's knees and that's not our whole Hollywood machine about rags to riches and getting rich. And, you know, we, we, we learn to love and be loved. We love ourselves. We love 
our communities. We even love the microbiome. You know, that, that again, probably sounds crazy, but that's what living in service of life is, I believe. And so speculation, just like stranded assets, I think the language is giving us a lot of clues. Speculation just doesn't make sense in that environment. It gets weeded out because it's not desirable. So is it like the suburbs? Well, Robert, maybe the suburbs there get everything because I think when we get this right, the cities are not dirty. They're not full of skyscrapers that kill a billion birds a year, a billion migratory birds a year that are disoriented from, and that's not to mention the bats, by the way, we mostly have stats on birds, not bats. Um, you know, we, we reconstruct our cities and we're going to have a bunch that we're going to have to reconstruct in short order because of sea level rise. And we realize, oh, by the way, because of COVID that we don't all have to funnel into great big skyscrapers. We realize that a regenerative city is an amazing place where people survive. We, we don't have to get out of it to raise our children because we've thought through what it means to work in service of life. And every industry has. Doesn't it bother you? I'm sure it does bother you, but you're usually reasonably politically correct to hold yourself back. Um, you wrote a letter to Larry Fink because everybody was praising him because he was now going to address climate and carbon with his seven or eight trillion dollars but nobody really read what he said because he was saying that he's going to make money on the climate risk that's not the same thing of addressing it so and when every year around second or third week of january all the press releases of all the big listed companies are pushed out because of world economic forum and like we're you know microsoft saying we're going to suck out all the carbon we ever put out there by 2050 Mm -hmm. And I hear pension funds, we're going to commit $20 billion by 2035. Mm -hmm. And I'm, who is going to call them in 2035 or 50 and say, hey, dude, you didn't get it. And yeah. everybody processes these nonsensical press releases. Don't you get angry at that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're baiting me a little because I do. And folks who've hung out with me have definitely heard me go on a bit of a, a rant. But lately, I'd, I'd say I've been doing something which is taking some of the better parenting advice I've heard and trying to apply it in, in my work. I, I'm not a parent, by the way, but I, you know, I'm an aunt and I hang out with a lot of parents. Um, and this parenting advice, I would say, is um, don't be furious, be curious. And I find that that's very helpful advice because first of all, being angry is just doesn't feel good. And I'm not at my most creative. I'm certainly not at my most able to connect or, or influence if I've ever had that capacity. So by being curious, I can perhaps identify ways that I can contribute to something being different. Um, example that I'm thinking about right now, I don't have a real answer, but it's kind of live on my mind, which is that, so I noticed that the largest steel producer in the world, ArcelorMittal, uh, in recent uh, investor dialogue there, the CEO, Lakshmi um, Mittal, talked about their three goals right off the top. So big, you know, opening statements. The first two were related to financial growth, but the third was um, related to how they will be a zero, they will be producing zero carbon steel and be a net zero uh, emitter by 2050. And I look at that and I actually get really angry. My first instant is anger because I think, well, first of all, 2050 is a really long, like to your point, Robert, like 
who's going to call him up, you know, 30 years from now, uh, will he still be around? Um, but also because I feel like it's the wrong question. Like how, how does steel, how can steel contribute to life would be my question. And, uh, so the focus on that goal of like this way far from now, carbon neutral. Uh, and so I did a little digging and first of all, there is a lot of pretty amazing stuff that they're trying to do. So it's not nothing a little bit like Walmart. It's like, this is a big, <laughs> really big company that's in every part of the world in so many products. So to just cast aspersions and be like, you guys are jerks and you're not really doing it. And what, who's going to call you in 30 years just gets my backup. Um, so where are there opportunities for change and where are there opportunities to insert a new way of thinking and understanding? I don't have access to Lakshmi, you know, you know Lakshmi and I, we, we don't go way back. He doesn't know me from a bar of soap, but I do know some folks who work for ArcelorMittal here locally, huge production here in Montreal, big Montreal is a very industrial city. People don't realize uh, one of the biggest ports and tons of oil and gas refining, tons of metal, etc. cetera. Uh, used to be a huge aluminum producer as well. And there's still some action there. So what I see here is that um, it's, they are incentivized right now to have, so they have unions, they're incentivized to uh, have folks running double and sometimes triple shifts. So working night shifts, working super crazy hours because demand is up for steel um, instead of hiring new people. It is cheaper for the company to have fairly well compensated unionized employees working inhumane hours than to hire new people. And so I look at that and I say this goal around zero carbon steel is totally divorced from what it means to serve life. You have people who are like beyond physical capacity and that's actually really dangerous from a whole bunch of angles. So how do we actually stand back and look at what are we asking of these companies? Zero carbon. Okay. But to an earlier question, you know, how do we actually see meaningful information that demonstrates this is a company that understands the complexity of the problem and that there are human beings and other species and, and, and you know, waterways and, and other non-human actors involved. What I think gets us there is we ask for that information. We ask, I literally mean, okay, you've got these facilities on the St. Lawrence river. Did you ask the river for its input, which anybody can do? And the answer would be pretty obvious what the river wants. So I, I don't get angry. I get curious and I get activated and I share what I'm seeing and I'm seeing movement towards more robust metrics. I see incredible emergent actions like Jyoti Banerjee's North Star Transitions, like Climate Data Hub that Kathy Chiba and Sumit Sandhu and others are working on. I see amazing work that's starting to coalesce around this. And I say, okay, I'm going to find that. I'm going to tell stories about that. I'm going to connect people to that because Lakshmi hasn't called me yet. So um, I can't get too mad at him. Uh, because you also said you were, we have way, 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 way too many questions to even try to make a dent in it. Uh, but I'll send you the uh, the chat list. Um, one, that you make, one that was like, oh gosh, we really got to hit this question. I, I have, I haven't been seeing them all. Uh, I want to, I want to thank you for taking the the time for running the hundred miles to try to feel what it is for an industry to do that. I don't know many consultants that would do that. Most consultants I know 
are looking just to write hours. I don't know anyone who's looking to try to put themselves in the shoes of the large industry by trying to run 100 miles. I, uh, you have great integrity. Um, you should all reach out to uh, Lorraine. She, will, she takes a lot of time to study everything, so you might get back to you by 2050 uh, if you reach out to her on LinkedIn. I want to try to make a group selfie with, the, with all of us here who want to be on the photo. I want to be on the photo with, uh, with um, Lorraine. Uh, and if there's anything that we can do to help you, Lorraine. Um, okay, so, so now everybody will get a chance to take a photo of yourself. Just press accept this. And then it will make a collage of all the different photos made. And those photos, I'll put them out on the social media or push them out into uh, the, um, the mailing the replay of this, for those of you who want to watch it again, will be available. It usually takes a few hours. Uh, is there anything that we can do today to help you, Lorraine, other than send you some nice bagels from New York? <laughs> Not as good as Montreal bagels. Yeah, New York bagels can't compete with Montreal, so don't send me those. Yeah, thank you. Well, first of all, thank you so much, Robert, and to your team for for. Uh, inviting me to this conversation. It's, an, it's a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. And I really appreciate the questions and attention of your audience. Um, and I guess the, the thing I would invite everyone to do is to give yourself permission to imagine what does a regenerative economy look like to you? You know, how do, what is it? And just bring your mind into that space. And as you walk around, go about your day, explore that and imagine what you're doing there, what it looks like, what's happening. And then when you come back to reality, as we have it today, um, look for what you're already doing that could help bring us into that future. Because I guarantee there's things you're already doing that you could amplify and and share with others and, and bring to the world. So just that. Keep doing what you're doing, but tilt it towards a regenerative universe that you want to be in. Uh, thank you, Lorraine, very, very much. I really appreciate you, your time and share, being so uh, being an authentic eccentric, so uh, I appreciate that. Thank you to our guest and audience for joining us today. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more, please subscribe where you listen to your podcast. This was Radical Truth. Stay safe. Stay safe.